Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to Books on Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Ryan Vieira about time and politics, parliament, and the culture of modernity in Britain and the British world, which is published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Ryan Vieira, who's the author of Time and Politics, which is a new book about parliamentary uh, time, the culture of modernity um, in Britain and the British world. It's a, it's a really fascinating uh, history book that I think has a lot of important uh, sort of lessons for where we are today and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I guess the place to start is with the kind of the history of the book itself. Um, so I'd be interested to know a bit where the book fits into kind of your overall career, where the book has come from and, and the sort of um, work you've been doing um, before the publication of the book? Sure. The um, The book grew out of my uh, doctoral dissertation, which um, was on roughly the same subject. Uh, the book, though, is an expansion, um, whereas in the doctoral dissertation, I focused exclusively on uh, the British case during the 19th century. Uh, the book uh, examines uh, not only Britain, but also these sort of reverberations of procedural reform uh, throughout the, what we call the British world. But really what we're talking about there is the settlement colonies of the British Empire. Uh, so Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. Um, I became interested in the subject of procedure in Parliament uh, because prior to Doing a, a doctoral degree, I was working in the Canadian House of Commons uh, for a member of parliament who um, was on the standing committee for uh, procedure, um, as well as standing committee for justice and human rights and a number of other uh, committees. And um, working for him, I became interested in the wheels of parliament, internal rules of the game that enable certain things to happen. Uh, and um, limit the 
you know, possibilities for political action at the, the highest level. So that's where the book came from. Um, uh, initially, I wasn't actually going to work on Parliament when I came to school uh, to study for the doctoral degree. I was interested in the subject of time and um, political movements, particularly movements like uh, Joseph Chamberlain's uh, terror reform movement or the national efficiency movement at the end of the 19th century. And I was interested in how they constructed time in a certain way in order to mobilize support, you know, in order to create a sense of urgency. Because I think that that rhetorical strategy is one that exists in our contemporary political life as well and is characteristic of modern political movements generally. Uh, I sort of fell into the procedure question um, while I was doing the, the political movement work and then I became more and more interested in the subject uh, of, you know, how governments gain control over parliament. And um, you know, ultimately, after four years, I essentially had a, a dissertation on parliamentary procedure instead of political movements. And so uh, so that's that's the short history of where the book came from, I guess. Well, one of the things I really like about the book is that I think there are kind of three things going on all at once. There's a sort of historiographical or a historical methodology moment in the book there's quite a lot of interesting um integrations or applications of theory and then there's this you know kind of wonderful rich um historical data and you know historical documentation from newspapers and um, the parliamentary record and, and this kind of stuff and i wonder if we could sort of unpack those things through a couple of questions about the overall story that the book is telling. And I guess a place to sort of kick that off might be um, to hear a little bit about the ideas of efficiency and scrutiny in parliaments and how, I, I guess, you know, these two things are really important because that's, you know, the kind of the job of, of a parliament, but they stand a little bit in tension with each other as well. Sure. Yeah. The, any deliberative body that's also required to make decisions is always going to have a tension between efficiency or action and uh, and deliberation or talk. Um, and certainly that's the case with parliament, any parliament, not just the British parliament, but any parliament. What's um, fascinating, though, is that for most of the 19th century, I mean, really the vast majority of the 19th century, there is an increasing concern outside of parliament to hasten parliament's action. I mean, at the popular level, uh, in the newspaper press, there's a sort of regular discourse that parliament is too slow, that, um, that it talks too much and acts too little. But in parliament itself, for the vast majority also of the 19th century, there's very little concerted action to adopt procedures that would accelerate Parliament's movement, uh, accelerate the lawmaking process. After the 19th century, I mean, really after the 1880s, the 1880s represent a sort of turning point, not only in Britain, but throughout the British world. After that turning point, for most of the 20th century, at least up to about the 1970s, the situation is different. Outside of Parliament, there grows this growing, this increasing discontent with um, the executive or government's control over parliament, and it's 
tendency to try and push through bills with insufficient scrutiny. Uh, but within Parliament, the procedural reforms that are adopted uh, tend con to continually uh, sort of increase or accelerate Parliament action. Uh, so there's a, a sort of major change historically at the end of the 19th century, uh, both in Parliament, um, with what is in terms of what is seen as rational parliamentary reform, procedural reform anyway, and outside of Parliament, uh, with what is seen as um, a rational pace for parliamentary action. And my book sort of tells the story of the, the transition from that first phase in the 19th century to the second phase. And I think now in the, the 21st century, and certainly for the later 20th century as well, there seems to have been another shift uh, increasingly outside of Britain and in the former British Empire, there seems to be a tendency towards slowing Parliament down um, and meeting the public concerns over uh, a too, you know, a too executively dominated par Parliament. Uh, except that in Britain, there seems to continually be a tendency towards accelerating Parliament's action at the procedural level. And if you think about Tony Blair's uh, modernization committee and the types of reforms that it adopted, uh, I think you'll see that. that the, in Britain, there's continually a tendency to accelerate reform. But now, outside of Britain, uh, there's an attempt to um, slow things down. And maybe there's a, a second book in there. Oh, I hope, I hope so. Actually, that, that'd be quite interesting. It'd be particularly interesting if you kind of carry over the approach that time and politics takes because um, you've got, you know, a really kind of specific historical approach that you describe as a sort of culturalist approach mm -hmm. to telling the story of the uh, the shifts that go on um, in the late 19th century. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about what, what the cultural approach, uh, culturalist approach is and what the kind of new story is that you're telling. Sure. I guess maybe I should tell you what the old story is. Uh, <laughs> that too, yeah. You have a, a sense of what's new about what I'm doing. Um, so the, the subject of procedural reform and the growth of ministerial control in Parliament isn't really, I mean, there's nothing novel about the, the subject itself. Um, people have been writing about it since the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, historians have been writing about it since the beginning of the 20th century, and arguably, uh, I would say, still the best book on the subject is from 1902 or 1908 or something like that. So, there's, uh, there's, you know, it's not a new subject. What's new about what I'm doing is the, the type of explanation I'm providing and the methodology I use by that explanation. So political scientists and historians who have tackled the question have typically looked internally to Parliament for an answer. Now, the question is, why at the end of the 19th century did um, Parliament shift from being so resistant towards acceleratory reforms that gave power, increasing powers to the government um, towards, uh, and then in the, at the end of the 19th century, shift towards um, providing these reforms. And most people, most historians and political scientists look internally to Parliament. They look at, um, or they look at constitutional change, the growth of party, uh, the growth of ministerial responsibility, the recession of uh, the crown from Parliament, the, um, increasing workload that came before the House of Commons. Uh, all of these sorts of things, they say, conspired together 
to, uh, at the end of the 19th century, reach such a sort of burden of work that Parliament had to, um, had to change. And then, of course, there was the obstruction, uh, the crisis of obstruction at the end of the 19th century with the, the Irish Parliamentary Party under uh, Charles Stuart Parnell, uh, which, you know, brought everything to, to a head. So, I mean, that's basically the, the traditional story. I mean, it focuses on, focuses on the growth of party, the uh, growth of ministerial responsibility, the growth of obstruction as a regular, uh, systematic tactic of parliamentary politics, um, these sorts of things. And I think all of that stuff is very important, and it, certainly it plays a role in the narrative I tell in my book. Uh, I, I wouldn't deny at all in any way that uh, the growth of the party and the um, the emergence of obstruction at the end of the 19th century played a major uh, role uh, in the transition that occurs in parliamentary reform. But what's missing from this story and uh, what I think is really the decisive element is the broader culture of time um, that's that's shifting throughout the 19th century and how this um, impinges on the consciousness of parliamentarians. And so that, that's basically the, the difference in my book, is that I'm focusing not only on parliamentarians within parliament, but also as you know, members of a broader society that's undergoing massive changes in terms of uh, the way it experiences and perceives time. And there's two major changes, generally speaking, that are important here. One is a growth in, of a sense of acceleration, both historically, you know, a sense that history is um, picking up speed in terms of its movement towards the future, and in terms of um, sort of the engagement with everyday life. So the, there's an increased pace of social change, an increased pace of, uh, uh, of one's movement, potential movement uh, across space through things, of course, like the railway. Um, and then the second thing, which is very much connected, the second um, temporal shift or you know, shift in time culture that's equally important is a growing sense of discontinuity with the past. Uh, and so we see, particularly at the end of the 19th century, uh, this sense of historical break and um, belief that you know, the, the Britons are standing on the edge of a new historical era. Uh, one in which previously vital um, institutions are no longer, um, you know, are no longer uh, up to snuff for the new historical era. And so these two major historical changes, I argue in the book, um, really were sort of decisive in causing parliamentarians and the, the public to uh, to decide ultimately that Parliament needed to adopt more restrictive, but um, more restrictive reforms, uh, restrictive on debate that is, but reforms that ultimately accelerated the lawmaking process. Yeah, I, I think we can pick up a couple of these sort of bigger social, contextual, cultural factors as you do in the first chapter and the second chapter. And the mm. thing I, I sort of picked out from the first chapter is the idea of MPs becoming observable subjects uh, mm -hmm. through a variety of different sort of uh, cultural um, techniques and cultural changes. And then 
um, this feeds through and is, is kind of related to, I think, the idea of kind of respectability um, and how that relates to not much change going on. Um, so I wonder if you could unpack those two ideas, the, the MP is an observable subject and then the, the concept of respectability. Yes, yeah. So at the beginning of the 19th century, one of the, the uh, major historical changes in parliamentary, in the history of parliament, uh, is that newspapers start regularly and sort of, um, not only regularly, but accurately and thoroughly uh, reporting parliamentary debates. And by uh, you know, the, the mid-19th century, these debates are something that are read by everybody. They're, they're sort of popular entertainment uh, for the day. And this is this is new. I mean, in the 18th century, this isn't something that was happening. In fact, Parliament, you know, cracked down on anybody that uh, tried to publish the debates. Um, in the 19th century, not only uh, are they sort of allowing uh, newspaper men to, to do this, but they also, you know, they built a gallery in the, the House of Commons. Once the House of Commons burns down uh, in the 1830s and then it was rebuilt, it, they built an actual gallery called the Reporters' Gallery so that reporters can report the debates. Uh, and so MPs uh, obviously are aware of this. I mean, they, they're standing in the House of Commons and they can see the, their constituents through the reporter staring at them. Before the 19th century, of course, the... the uh, the member of the House of Commons had absolute control over who saw and heard what he had to say. Uh, he had to give a ticket to somebody to sit in the visitor's gallery. Uh, so he had control and he could just look up and see whoever from his constituency was attending and observing. Um, this becomes much more anonymous uh, once, once it gets filtered through the newspaper. So the parliamentarian, all he can see now is the, uh, the national um, papers sitting up there taking dictation from what he's saying and uh, transmitting it to the local paper ultimately. Um, and so the, the, health, the member of parliament starts to know that he's being watched constantly by his constituents. And uh, what's important here is not only that he knows that he's being watched, but he knows that he's being watched by a group of people who define themselves as uh, industrious, and this is how the British, one of the, the key factors of British national identity, I think, at the early, so early to mid-19th century is uh, industriousness. And so he knows that his um, constituents expect him to be industrious as well, to be a respectable British um, man. And so this it starts allows us to start to understand why throughout the 19th century there's a growing not only volume of work in terms of bills that are being brought before the House of Commons, but also motions and more um, display-oriented forms of work, speeches and so on, um, that, are, that are being brought uh, by members of Parliament. Because it, these more display or discursive elements to parliamentary work enable these backbencher MPs to present themselves to their constituents as respectable. Of course, there's a huge irony here because as every, you know, uh, every of the, um, every MP starts to try and appear industrious to his constituents, 
ultimately he makes the House of Commons appear unindustrious because it's no longer able to get through the work that's coming before it. And uh, so there's this very fascinating um, contradiction that emerges between the MP as the observable subject knowing that he as an individual representative of an individual constituency has to speak in order to legitimate his position in the House of Commons to his constituents. And on the other hand, the MPs as a corporate body knowing uh, that in order to appear industrious to their constituents, uh, not, you know, not only their constituents in the, the local sense and in, in their actual constituency, but to the nation generally, uh, they know they have to be appear industrious by passing bills. And these two things um, are, you know, it's impossible to achieve both of them if there's no, if there's not an infinite amount of time. And so this creates uh, one of the tensions that ultimately leads to the, the um, shift in procedural reform that I spoke about at the beginning of our, our talk. Why was 1882 significant here? The, the, the first couple of chapters of the book set this cultural context, but gesture towards the fact that there's more sort of, uh, more sort of heat than light in terms of actual reforms. Um, and then things change in that. Um, kind of later phase. Um, so what, what happens in the later phase? Yeah. So 1882 is the, the first time that we see a sort of attempt to systematically reform parliamentary procedure in order to give the government the ability to pass the bills that, you know, it's come into power to pass. Uh, and we see this through the introduction of more restrictive rules. The most notable and controversial at the time was the closure, which provides, a, you know, as everyone knows, it provides the government the ability to, to end a debate and force a vote on a, on a subject. Um, but there were other things involved here as well uh, that were discussed for a long period of time, um, you know, the, the introduction of a committee system. I think one of the things that was most fascinating to me when I was when I started studying the history of Parliament in the 19th century is that there was no committee system uh, until the 1880s. And it actually dies after the 1880s for a short period of time, and then it's brought back. But every single bill uh, was not only debated on the floor of the House in the plenum, but was debated on a, a clause by clause basis, like the way we would in a, in a committee these days was debated on a clause by clause basis on the floor of the House. You know, with all, uh, you know, with a sometimes a packed house, and then you can never fit in the British House of Commons the full number of MPs that were elected. But you know, you could fit about three hundred of them in there. So uh, this all this slowed things down in the eighteen eighties. Um, there's in the in eighteen eighty two in particular, uh, William Gladstone introduces a committee system to um, uh, sort of delegate this this work in order to accelerate things. Uh, and this, you know, at the initial stage sort of limits the amount of time uh, or the, the ability of um, local government, excuse me, local uh, members of parliament it limits their ability to debate each bill. Because once the bill is moved uh, outside of the plenum, then, of course, only those people who are members of the committee have the ability to debate. Uh, the bill on a point-by-point -point or clause-by-clause -clause basis, whereas during second and third reading, it's um, it's debated as uh, um, you know, by the spirit of the bill or the overall idea of the bill. So there's there's that as well. Now, what touches uh, this all off is 
um, the obstruction crisis that emerges from the tactics of uh, Charles Stuart Parnell and the Irish Parliamentary Party that he comes to be in control of after Isaac Butt dies in the early 1880s as well. Uh, so that's why, in terms of the history of parliamentary procedure, 1882 is important because it represents this turning point. Uh, what I think is more fascinating, though, is you know the question not only of why things changed in 1882, but why things didn't change up until 1882. Because a lot of these, and this is actually the sort of novel element of the book, um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the historians and political scientists who have engaged with the question of procedural reform, and will generally there's a consensus that 1882 is important and that the shift that occurs there in the history of procedure is, is you know, a major historical shift. Um, but what most haven't engaged with is the, the sort of opposite side of the coin. Why did things not change until 1882? And the, the argument I make there is, is really the cultural one. And that I argue that there was a, sort of sense of historical continuity that was integral to British identity. It's one of the things that separated the British from the Americans and from the, the French. Of course, the British didn't have uh, a revolution in the way that um, the British and the French did. And uh, even the revolution that it did have, the glorious revolution, was told by the British to themselves as something that was really unrevolutionary or was not you know, the, the same as uh, massive political upheaval in the way that the American or French Revolution was. So it was integral to British identity to maintain a sense of continuity. And this sense of continuity was ultimately what bolstered, uh, what acted as a bulwark uh, against what were you know, regular claims at the, par at the popular level to introduce reforms that would accelerate Parliament. The closure itself had been debated in, in standing, excuse me, not standing committees, but in uh, committees uh, select committees on parliamentary procedural reform since the 1840s. And um, the committee system uh, had been debated uh, amongst parliamentarians uh, for roughly the same period of time. So it's really fascinating that it took 40 years for uh, this change to actually happen, <clears throat> especially when in other countries, uh, such as the United States and France, the closure was introduced uh, much, much earlier. What's fascinating for the rest of the book then is is the sort of the sense that this isn't actually a British story in terms of you know the the, the British Isles uh, you know or the, the two islands you know this is a story that has a global aspect to it and partially this is um, with the way you kind of uh, illustrate the story with um, Canadian and, and Australian examples but it's also with um, an idea you kind of gestured towards at the beginning of our talk, which is this concept of the of the British world at the time, and mm -hmm. I think that idea is, is is really crucial actually, particularly the relationship between this concept of the British world and and what the role of Parliament uh, was was kind of playing in that. So it'd be good to um, to sort of hear a bit about that idea, and then also why Parliament was important too. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, and this is 1882, the importance of 1882 fits in here, too. Um, so the British world, what the British world was, was a series of settler colonies that were connected through um, communicative networks, mostly newspapers, but uh, also um, informal um, letters back and forth from families who had emigrated from Britain uh, to, say, Canada, um, and, uh, and um, transnational organizations, uh, professional organizations, uh, these sorts of things. Parliamentarians, for instance, wrote letters back and forth between uh, Canada and, and Britain and um, between uh, uh, Australia and Britain and between Australia and Canada. So it, around 1815, after the Napoleonic Wars, there's this massive increase in um, emigration from Britain. And most of the, most of the, the immigrants are emigrants end up in the United States, but, uh, but a, a very large number also end up in these settler colonies. And the difference between the United States and these settler colonies is the United States is already, you know, somewhat densely populated or has densely populated regions anyway, uh, by this point. And, um, there's a growing, national identity in, in the United States, whereas in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, um, while there's certainly indigenous populations, uh, these are not densely populated, and um, there's no uh, sense of identity in the European sense, um, not one that's expressed in a language that can be understood by the British. Um, nor uh, nor one that would be recognized as legitimate by the, the British at the early 19th century. And so when, these, when there's this mass exodus of people from Britain to the settler colonies, uh, they bring with themselves their British national identity. And there's nothing in the new colony to the, excuse me, there's nothing in the new colony uh, to cause them to give that up. In the, in the way that there would be for those who went to the United States. And so we have the emergence of these new societies in these settler colonies that are subconsciously British and that are trying to establish, uh, as James Bellick uh, puts it, neo-Britons or Britons that are uh, you know, even better than the, the, the Britain that they left. And this um, sense of continued sense of being British while outside of Britain uh, is fostered continually by uh, a newspaper, th these networks that I was talking about, newspapers and letter writing um, systems uh, that enabled the British outside of Britain to stay in contact with um, current events back home. Now, in terms of Parliament why, and why it's successful or why it's important uh, in this story, uh, the British, of course, always saw Parliament as something that was, you know, integral to who they were politically. And so when the, uh, these emigrants end up in the, the colonies of settlement and they're given the opportunity to establish their own representative systems, um, they establish, uh, you know, institutions that are um, based not loosely but very strongly on the British model, in fact, simply adopt British procedures and um, 
uh, you know, the, the design of a British parliament. They, they adopt the Westminster parliamentary system. Uh, and so you have these little mini um, Westminsters all scattered throughout uh, the colonies. Where 1882 fits into this is uh, the, the obstruction crisis that Charles Stuart Parnell and the Irish Parliamentary Party create uh, between 1878 and 1882 uh, is something that is reported on uh, tremendously in the British press. And there's a few reasons for that. One is you know, the obvious one, uh, and that's that you know, parliamentary debates were reported on um, daily in, in the press. Uh, and these were you know, major parliamentary debates. The other reason, of course, is because there's a land war going on in Ireland and there's a series of in, in, uh, imperial blunders um, in the non-settlement uh, empire, you know, the first South African war, uh, for instance. And so uh, the actions of the Irish sort of take on this um, take take on this series of meanings that, that the, the British become concerned with in terms of imperial decline, racial decline, and so on. And the, the, the Irish uh, become interpreted as these sort of imperial um, rebels, if you like. In fact, that's how they're referred to by uh, uh, Brand, the, um, Henry Brand, the Speaker of the House. Uh, and so this becomes a, a sort of uh, popular story in the press. I mean, it becomes something with wheels, and so it's reported on quite, quite a bit. And... The, in these neo-Britons uh, in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and so on, um, it's in the papers that they're receiving as well, these um, transnational papers that they're receiving from back home. And uh, a similar story starts to unfold there as well. Um, what's interesting, actually, is that in the settlement colonies, uh, there's more of a push. Uh, there's more factors that should cause acceleratory procedural reforms because these are very, very rapidly industrializing societies. And they're industrializing at a pace that you know, outstrips Britain, certainly at, at the end of the 19th century. Um, that's not to say they're more industrial, it's just to say the, the pace at which they're industrializing is faster. And so um, the number of bills uh, and so on that is coming before their... Um, their assemblies is is not larger, but it's uh, growing at a larger pace. And interestingly, in these imperial assemblies uh, or Westminsters throughout the the empire, uh, the same story about historical continuity uh, is evident in um, their decisions not to adopt restrictive parliamentary reforms and to stick to the British model of fair play and all this. Uh, once they start reading in the newspapers about Henry, about William Gladstone and um, and Charles Stuart Parnell and Henry Brand, the Speaker of the House, and so on, and this obstruction crisis, and ultimately uh, how William Gladstone, as the strong British man, puts down the imperial revolt that's occurring in his own parliament, uh, they start becoming more, in these little Westminster, start becoming... Um, more keen on adopting these similar restrictive reforms. And in fact, when they, when the governments in these locations start adopting them, 
if you study their language, you notice that it's almost as though they're playing out an imperial drama themselves, where they're adopting the identity of William Gladstone, putting down the 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 revolt of um, lesser subjects. Uh, and so it, it's really a, a sort of fascinating thing how the newspaper, how the communicative networks of the British world transmit this new parliamentary culture, which focuses on efficiency as the, you know, a standard for rational parliamentary action uh, and masculinity. And, um, and you know, how, how this is adopted uh, throughout the, the settlement empire, the of uh, settlement colonies of the British Empire. Yeah, you have this really wonderful kind of set of phrases around, you know, the grand inquest of the nation that becomes mm-hmm. the parliamentary machine. Um, yeah. And, and that shift, I think, is, you know, is the kind of the big story um, that, that's going on here. And I wonder, just by way of conclusion, could you give a, a couple of examples of of these these settler places, these these colonies, these as you call them, you know, neo Britons, um, you know, maybe an Australian one or maybe a, a Canadian one, um, to see, you know, what kind of changes go on because obviously this is um, something you get into in, in quite a lot of detail in, in the fourth chapter of the book. Yeah, the, the fourth chapter deals with two um, uh, case studies. Uh, one in New South Wales, which is the the original and still the major colony of um, in Australia. Australia isn't unified into a country, yeah, uh, yeah, at the at the time. And the other is um, in Canada, which uh, has Canada in nineteen thirteen, um, and Canada at this point has been confederated, so it's the full country, the full uh, top half of the North American continent now is Canada. Um, in both of those cases, I focus on the question of the closure. And the reason I focus on closure, uh, well, there's a few reasons, really. One is because for most of the 19th century, while the closure was brought up in Britain and was brought up in these settler colonies as well from time to time, it was seen as too foreign and too French to be, particularly too French, to be adopted. Um, it was seen as something that was standing outside of the British model of of parliamentary fair play. Uh, and it was by far, I think, even in the 1880s, the most controversial of Gladstone's reforms. I mean, undoubtedly, it was the most controversial. Um, and it's also, I think, the symbolically um, the, the biggest shift because it actually provides, it doesn't just, you know, uh, devolve work into to other elements of um, a new parliamentary system, such as committees, for instance. Uh, but it it actually gives the government the ability to stop a debate. Um, and I think symbolically, in terms of the shift from the grand inquest of the nation to the parliamentary machine, uh, that that that's the biggest um, the the biggest change. So the, I focus on the closure in all of my case studies. For those reasons, um, it's adopted in uh, Canada in 1913 um, by uh, Robert Borden. And Robert Borden is the, an Anglo um, prime minister. Of course, Canada is divided, as you know, uh, as it's a bilingual country. So there's uh, French Canada and there's uh, English Canada. 
I mean, generally speaking, we're talking about Quebec. The province of Quebec is French Canada. There's a, certainly other um, major pockets of French Canada in, in Canada itself, but then that's the, the home of French Canada, and um, English Canada is sort of uh, west of that. <clears throat> in any case, uh, Robert Borden is the, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, and um, he's, uh, he introduces the closure in order to push through a naval aid bill, because Britain at this point is, um, as everybody knows, uh, the naval arms race with Germany. We're talking about the the period immediately before before the First World War. Uh, And so all of the colonies are being asked to provide um, funding or ships to to the British naval fleet. And so this this is something that Borden is trying to do as a a good Britain. and he, he can't do it because Wilfred Laurier, uh, the head of the liberal opposition, so Borden's a conservative, Laurier's a liberal. Um, Laurier, as the head of the and the liberal party that he's the head of, um, are obstructing the, the bill. They, they, they also want to provide naval aid, but it's a different uh, means. I can't remember whether uh, it's Borden who wants to provide ships and um, uh Laurier, who wants to provide cash, or if it's the other way around. But uh, in any case, um, Laurier is obstructing the the bill of Borden um, because he has an alternative uh, plan. And Borden introduces the closure as a procedural reform at the time in order to push through his uh, his bill. And what he starts to do, uh, and the, the the language that he uses and that his party uses in the debates, is to echo back. Um, is to create an echo of uh, the 1882 debates in Britain. And he presents himself as Gladstone, putting down, uh, you know, the, the revolt of um, a lesser people. In this case, it's the French Canadians. Um, because it really, in the, the way that there was a relation, in, the, in terms of the relationship between the British and the Irish, uh, and the way that the Irish were often racialized uh, by the British, there's a very similar relationship in Canada between French Canada and English Canada. Um, French Canadians are uh, racialized by English Canadians at the time. Anyway, so he uses this imagery to uh, push through his his bill. And um, what's really sort of hugely ironic is that he is, uh, he's by no means Gladstonian, even though he's presenting himself as uh, Gladstone, the Canadian version of Gladstone. Uh, in fact, Laurier, in terms of policy and uh, identity is much more akin to Gladstone. And in fact, Laurier himself is referred to as the grand old man of Canadian uh, politics in the way that um, uh, Gladstone was referred to as the grand old man of British politics. But anyway, uh, Borden employs the the memory of um, 1882 in order to justify as Canadian and you know, justify really as British and therefore as Canadian. Uh, the procedural reforms he's introducing and uh, in order to sort of cut off any argument about these reforms being foreign or too French or, uh, or whatever. And, uh, and so that, that would be, I think, one of the more interesting examples of how this circulated. And what I think is interesting is that why the Canadian case is really interesting other than those reasons. And this is happening almost you know, 30 years after the British incident. And yet the memory is still 
uh, on the minds not only of the parliamentarians like Borden and Laurier and uh, so on, but also the the press. I mean, the press are uh, are using um, the British story as well in the way that they're reporting what's happening in Canada. And so, not only in Britain, not only in Parliament, but in the press, there's this sense that the transition towards a more executive-oriented model of Parliament or parliamentary rules, anyway, is a larger transnational shift related that that is British um, in origin. And I think it really makes the case for the uh, the culturalist uh, approach and, and and the kind of the culturalist. Hmm. Uh, reading to to properly understand um, both the British and then the British world's um, transformations and changes, and and I think you know you you captured that really really well with that with that example. Is this you know kind of stuff you're working on now in terms of moving forward? Maybe you know a future book project. Um, you know you're still kind of pursuing the culturalist line, um, or are you doing kind of completely different uh, research moving forward? Uh, no, I'm still I'm still interested in um, the history of procedure. I think there's a book to be written. I don't know that I'll ultimately be the one who does it, but I think there's a sort of sequel book to be written uh, about the shift from roughly the mid 20th century on uh, towards um, less executive dominated parliamentary procedures and the way in which uh, the former colonies of settlement are the ones leading this shift. And one of the fascinating things, really, in in uh, in what I'm talking about here is that for the 19th century and up to, let's say, the mid 20th century, uh, there's cert- there's a transnational shift in Westminster parliamentary procedure, uh, and it's a shift towards the executive, and it's a shift that's led by the Parliament back home at Westminster. From roughly the mid 20th century on, there's a growing disconnect, discontent with this acceleratory model of parliamentary organization or executive dominated. There's this growing discontent with the parliamentary machine, if you want to put it that way. Uh, There's this uh, growing sense of being dissatisfied with a parliament that's dominated by the government. And there's a shift towards providing more opportunities for backbench members to meaningfully um, participate in uh, parliamentary debate and make meaningful contributions to to lawmaking. Um, But this shift uh, is led not by um, Britain, but by the the former colonies of settlement. And in fact, Britain, um, I think, is left sort of behind uh, as uh, this shift is still unfolding. Uh, I think there's a book to be written in that, and uh, I think it would be one that would focus on the uh, formalized, uh, so both of the formal connections uh, amongst the parliamentary uh, institutions of the former empire. So, for instance, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, and the informal um, uh things still connecting them, such as uh, the media and, um, you know, professional associations that they're exchanging letters through and this sort of thing. So uh, I think there's, there's a book to be written there. Um, 
uh, I would like to do it, but I don't know that, it, that I will. Uh, I'm also still interested um, in a question, in the question of risk and accidents. One of the things that I, that sort of grew out of my research on that on this first book was an interest in in accidents and disasters and how human beings come to live with technology, uh, even though they constantly see the technologies they live with explode in front of their faces. Um, <laughs> as this grew out of the the Parliament book because. Uh, I think it's in the third chapter, I'm discussing how the um, reforms in parliamentary procedure are being debated uh, roughly the same time, and, you know, often on the same day, as um, as uh, railway reforms aimed at lessening accidents. And the, the uh, imagery of the railway accident starts to become part of the way British parliamentarians think about um, parliamentary reform as a sort of uh, risk mitigation strategy instead of in terms of a sort of ethical, moral, uh, national identity thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm still interested in the question of risk and, um, and accidents too, though at the moment I'm not working particularly on anything. Well, I, I hope one of those two projects comes to fruition. They both sound really, really interesting. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Ryan Vieira about time and politics, Parliament, and the culture of modernity in Britain and the British world. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.